on this episode of the LP, Literature in Practice. I think as teachers, we have to remember we have agency. We are not helpless. I'm not going to teach a book that's harmful. So a teacher has to be willing to say, like, how much and how far am I willing to push it? One of Frederick Douglass's famous sayings is, once you learn to read, you'll be forever free. I do wonder sometimes if that statement is true in all cases. As someone who was explicitly forbidden from reading, there was an inherent freedom in learning to read and the access it provided during chattel slavery. What about those though, yesterday and today, who are completely literate, but are still psychologically jailed? When it comes to becoming literate in written English, it seems like the purpose of becoming literate matters a lot. From African-Americans like Frederick Douglass, we receive a tradition and purpose of becoming literate called freedom for literacy and literacy for freedom. We explored what this looked like during Jim Crow on episode two with Jarvis Gibbons, author of the book, Fugitive Pedagogy. In the book, Literacy is Liberation, Kimberly N. Parker shares what this idea can look like in practice in today's classrooms. Join me as Dr. Parker and I discuss her book and nerd out on practical steps to practice freedom for literacy and literacy for freedom. This is the LP. I am excited in all the nerdy ways possible to be excited to have our guest, Dr. Kimberly N. Parker. Dr. Parker is an educator with 20 years experience. She's been a public school teacher. She also is a national professional development provider. Uh, her primary commitment is building intentional literacy communities. We're going to talk about what that looks like with the C-R-I-L-C. Got it currently the director of the Crimson Summer Academy at Harvard. And then last but not least, she's the president of the Black Educators Alliance of Massachusetts, AKA BEAM. Without further ado, Dr. Parker, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thank you. That was a, a fantastic introduction. Um, I'm humbled and honored to be here. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm excited to have you on. So before we hop into these juicy questions around your text, I would like to know your relationship with text over the course of time. Ooh. So what was your favorite, if you had one, favorite text as a kid, as an adolescent, and as an adult? Yeah, I mean, this question sort of always makes me a little bit nervous, right? So I grew up on a farm in Kentucky, um, raised by my grandparents, who always valued literacy and reading. And so from the time my grandmother taught me how to read, I was able to read whatever I wanted. And so that was really my reading life. As a child, I read lots of books about horses because we lived on a horse farm. The Black Stallion um, reminds, like, sort of comes to mind. That was a series. Um, so I read all of those books by Walter Farley. And then um, when I was a young person, I would go to the library every Saturday. My grandmother would um, bring us into the town, into Lexington, and I would read books. And, you know, I, I was more like interest driven. So I remember I was really into, again, still like books about animals, um, poetry, the Vietnam War. I was really into that. And so I read whatever I wanted. And then as a grown up, right, I know that there are foundational texts for folks, but I think also I've read so many books. I more And I, I pay attention to like sentences and moments that I, I have favorites, none of which I can name now. 
<laughs> but um, that's really been my reading life. I've been able to choose whatever I have wanted to read pretty much from when I was able to really sit down and comprehend text. And so many favorites, but none I can sort of pull on. And I think that that's sort of indicative of my work with young people and that I don't really care what they read. I just want them to love reading. Dr. Parker, um, when you're writing this book, who'd you have in mind and who are you writing it for? Uh, when I was writing the book, I had a couple of people in mind. One, I had um, teachers who were just entering teaching who I knew from my work with um, pre-service teachers would have lots of questions, right? They would want to know sort of like, what does this mean? We're reading the theory, but what does it mean in the day-to-day? -day? So that's why it's so practical. Also, I wanted to write it um, for people who had been doing liberatory anti-oppressive work for a while who wanted to sort of push their practice to the next level. So that's why there are more challenging, maybe challenging practices in there that you probably would not undertake when you're a first year teacher. But it, when you get your sea legs, right, there are other things to do. And finally, I think it's for all of us who need a little review of the research, need a little bit of inspiration about why we are doing the work and for whom we are doing the work and need to be able to continue doing the work. What are CRILCs? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Culturally relevant intentional communities are essentially spaces. They can be in classrooms, they can be out external spaces to classrooms, which we know really that's where young people are practicing lots of their literacies, where um, they're grounded, you know, in those principles that Gloria Latson Billings gives us and have particular rituals and routines that contribute to the normalization of high achievement for all kids within them. So we're doing the things, right? We're regularly having practices and procedures, for example, independent reading, daily writing, things like that, that often black and brown kids don't get because it's so structured or taken away or driven by tests that they don't have the opportunity to really write at these really high levels that we know they can do. And so in these communities, these culturally relevant intentional literacy communities, right? It is they are censored and we do the work together to make sure that um, they, they can realize um, the high potential that we know that they always have. Now, when I, when I was hearing you provide that definition, I heard a bit of the code switching. I heard a bit of the code blending. But if you were to break down to somebody from Lexington, Kentucky, what C-R-I-L-C's are, how would you do it? I love that. Like my mom and them. Um, yeah. So I said, it's really about Black kids and other kids being in classroom spaces, and feeling like and knowing that their reading lives matter, right? You have a teacher who is working with them, not against them, but is actually for them and is helping them to read and write the best and be the best they can be. I want to talk about Savior Complex a little bit because you noted how early in your career you wrestled with Savior Complex. Mm -hmm. Can you explain how that impacted your ability to provide culturally relevant instruction? Yeah, right. Like I first started teaching in... Boston schools and in a charter school. And I, I was like, okay, we're going to save these kids because I think that's some of the narrative of teacher ed and also of like people around you. It was a new charter school and the founder was pretty much like, there was nothing here before and now we're coming, right? Very Columbus of her. Um, and so that was just the narrative, right? It was really easy to get along because you felt like you were doing some work. And you know, it got in the way because that like sort of impeded my, my early teaching. 
because kids are showing up like fully formed with all of these things. And I wasn't paying attention, right? I would just be like, oh, this is nice, but it's not the five paragraph essay, for example, or this is great, but this is not the book you should be reading, right? You should be reading To Kill a Mockingbird. So all of those books that we now fight, I've taught them all. And I think that was really, that was challenging. It was challenging for the kids. It was challenging for myself looking back. So that's also really important. I feel like we have to do is we have to be reflective and sort of think about what are the, the decisions that we made and what is the harm that we have caused because we do harm to children when we make decisions that are not with them or for them. And, you know, I'm pretty sure I probably thought I was acting in the best interest of kids and their families without really understanding that they were fine, right? It's systems that um, have contributed to so much of this and that um, I needed to change. Yeah. Um, what do you think would have happened if you didn't? I would still be thinking that kids were coming to us in need of um, changing and fixing, in need of care, um, when really that's just not the case. And we do tremendous damage, right? Like we do tremendous damage to kids when we think those things. Now, speaking about damage, um, you bring up the concept of reading trauma in the book. Can you describe what reading trauma is and what instructional moves can reverse it? Yeah, and this is um, a phrase from my colleague and Disrupt Tech's co-founder, Julia Torres, who talks about reading trauma as sort of any experience or set of experiences that damage kids and make them think differently about themselves, usually um, negatively about themselves as readers. And I talk a lot about reading logs <laughs> as reading trauma because there's really no research that says that reading logs build kids' ability to be better readers. In fact, there's lots of, of evidence, I would think anecdotal and otherwise, that proves that they don't or that they do damage. And, you know, as someone who also has assigned reading logs in my lifetime, I would just know that it was horrible. I would, I would think that I was, I was assessing kids' reading, right? You're going to read these books, you're going to write them down. You can have a conversation with them. And also we are readers, we should be readers. Hopefully we're, we're reading um, with kids and we could just ask questions about reading rather than having kids make the, do these contrived performances for us. And then, right, when kids don't turn them in, we're mad. So it just sets up this horrible cycle and kids hate reading when it's over. So, you know, right, I would remember Monday when they were due I would like, I could feel my pressure rising. I would, mm -hmm. It would be time to turn them in. I would go to that bin and I would be like, okay, only like five of you have turned in the reading log. And there yep. would be all the excuses, right? You wanted them signed. I didn't read all the days. I forgot that, you know, they are high, they are kids. They're, this is what happens. And also the task is not, is not the right task. So yeah. again, I could just say, hey, what's going on with reading? Let me sit down. Let's talk about it. You could get much more truthful, authentic, not shame producing responses from kids. And you actually can connect them to text. Reading trauma pushes them away. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I chuckled. And I, at the same time, like I, I had some uh, uh, haunting memories around reading logs as an ELAT. I was like, oh, she's going here. That's it. I know. Uh, that's I had to deal with my own stuff because yeah. there was a point in time where. You know, I think someone, I'm sure it was a veteran teacher or someone who said, do reading logs. And you know, like when you're just starting off or you don't have a lot of tools in your tool, toolbox, you mm -hmm. do what people say works. 
but it wasn't working for me and it wasn't working for my kids. And finally I was like, this is just not working, right? Yeah. This is not, I learned, do better. Once yeah. you learn better, do better. There are lots of opportunities for us to ask what's working and for whom, right? It wasn't working for me and it wasn't working for them. But some places, right, our, our practices are harmful and we say they still work. And there's also no research behind it. So that's, I think, another layer of thinking about, like, is this the right thing to do? And is this the right thing for the students who are in front of me at this moment? I don't think reading logs were ever the answer, um, but there are other sort of questions that we can ask that too about our practices. Yeah, and I was actually curious, uh, aside from reading logs, had there been any other, like, very standard practices that happen in ELA classrooms that are actually counterintuitive and or um, just aren't like research-based at, at all. Um, yeah, there, there are many. Um, I'll talk about the, the five paragraph essay immediately comes to mind. No. Or the fact that we want, we, we say we want kids to be powerful writers and yet we just give them the five paragraph essay or an informative paragraph to write. I have a second grader who just finished second grade. He wrote seven informative paragraphs, the same style, the <laughs> same way the same format for seven, seven things. Instead, we don't give kids examples with real writing, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we just kill the love of literacy for them every single day, every single day. And it starts early. Like I, I didn't, you know, you sort of suspect when you, when people talk about young, younger children and I believe them, but it's only been since I've experienced it firsthand that you see like, this is how reading trauma gets created, right? He, for a while, um, he thought he could only read books at his level, mm. uh, which is ridiculous. Kids are not levels. Um, and that writing was writing these boring paragraphs. I said, this is not writing. Yeah. You don't have to do this assignment because it's, you know, or not. But um, I think that there are many sites of reading trauma that we all just either can continue or we can say, this is not it and do something different. You know, and you and you bringing that up, um, it, it takes me back to a moment in uh, the book Literacy's Liberation, where you encourage teachers or building leaders to uh, have this process where, in the summer, they uh, you know evaluate or to use Gloria Latson Billings' words like deconstruct and reconstruct the curriculum right during the summer, and then during mid-year there's like an assessment of uh, how well aligned or how well you're doing with making sure that the curriculum that you uh, broke down and re kind of established and remixed was, uh, is aligned to, you know, culturally relevant uh, teaching. And then there's an end of year audit. Th right. This is what you're proposing in the mm -hmm. book, right? Yes. Um, and you know what the, the, the lack of text that you just described in students' experiences making me think about this process. Do you have a suggestion for like a teacher or a coach or a principal who like adopted a curriculum like the one that you kind of described where there's like maybe one book <laughs> about uh, Black History Month and it's about trauma, but they're expected to use that curriculum with fidelity, quote unquote, right? They're expected to narrow down, stick to it, stick to the pacing, stick to the materials. Uh, how, what would you recommend for them to do in, in that kind of situation? Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I think as teachers, we have to remember we have agency, right? Like we are not helpless. I know that this is like a fraught time 
And also, right, you got to decide what you're going to go to the mat for. I'm not going to teach a book that's harmful, even if it's in the curriculum, right? This is where um, you can sort of lean on professional organizations like the National Council of Teachers of English and others who are building these rationales for why we should teach text. And also, it's incumbent on us as these people who are coaching and being administrators and teachers to know what else is out there. I mean, I think that if it's, if it's a principal who really is um, grounded in principles of equity and justice, if a teacher comes to them and says, this book has the, I have, tr I have trouble with this book and these are the reasons, and these are four or five other books that do the same thing, meet the same standard, but don't cause the same violence and trauma and harm, then that's a conversation, right? And also a teacher has to be willing, teacher administrator coach has to be willing to say like how much and how far am I willing to push it, right? I feel like we haven't been pushing it far enough because this is where we are. And also we're gonna have to push back because um, I just keep thinking about all of the mandates that are coming. If we don't fight back right now, right? Then I think we're lost. This is the second time I heard you mention standards and being kind of grade level. And you talk about that again, literacy is liberation. Why is that important? And do you ever run into challenges because of that value? Yeah, I think for so many black and brown kids, particularly in particular contexts, urban schools, rural schools, they're not even given books that are on the grade level. Right. We just assume that they can't read. Right. We um, we don't really get to the source of their reading trauma, violence, et cetera. Right. We just assume, oh, you don't want to read or you don't like this book because we're giving them something that is outdated and boring instead of sort of starting with where they are. I think that we have teachers might say I have grade level text in my room. But the question is, are your kids reading them? Right? Are they being able to struggle a little productive struggle with these books so they can know what else is out there? I just, I worry that our expectations are so low for black and brown children, particularly when it comes to their reading um, lives that we don't even expect them to do more. And they can, right? Like they're reading all the time and all the levels outside of school. So why can't our classrooms be places where that definitely happens all the time? You know, in, in hearing you talk all this racially affirming and culturally responsive. Some might say, Dr. Parker, that you are politically indoctrinating our children. <laughs> what do you say to those who say teaching for collectivism and social political change is political indoctrination? You know what? Like, I love that question. It's so much, that question is so steeped in white supremacy, right? Look, yeah. <laughs> we are collectivist people, right? Folks of African descent, we are collectivists. And also, those of us who are organizers and really working for racial justice and change, collectivists, because you cannot do it by by yourself. And so, you know, I don't really, it's fine. They People are going to say what they want to say, but um, I'm not indoctrinating children. I mean, if I'm indoctrinating with them with anything, it's the love of reading. And I'm okay with that, right? I, I want you to be a really great reader when I when we part ways. I want you to keep reading. I want you to have a healthy reading life. And, you know, if that means I have an agenda, then so be it. I'm cool with it. Yeah. You know, it, it, as you were answering, I was thinking like, well, you know, how collective are you being on the other side, making sure all this legislation is taking place? Thank and you. gathering at these board meetings. Thank That's you. <laughs> Uh, right, you know, but you want to tell you the first time they <laughs> we're the first ones you want to yell at because we're not you know that's ridiculous and we all we all get caught up in this that's the problem and that 
Um, there's so much coming at educators right now that it's hard to even say like, where's, where's up? Yeah, and that, I actually wanted to touch on that a little bit too because one of my favorite tenets of trying to establish culturally responsive intentional literacy communities is the idea of vulnerability, like being honest about what your limitations are um, and what your roadblocks or blind spots are in order to be a better professional in, in that space. Um, but that can be hard for teachers to do for a reason you started hinting at around like it's there. There's a lot going on in the profession. Even before COVID, there was a lot going on in the profession. And it's just a hard space to navigate, um, especially for a group of professionals within the system that arguably are the most judged or criticized outside of students and parents. Yeah. Right? There's still power that teachers have. I don't want to get away from that. There's still power and responsibility and accountability that they have, but they're often the folks that people are pointing at. So how would you encourage teachers mm -hmm. to lean into vulnerability about their instruction when their society, education, and systems are the ones that kind of encourage what they're putting out? Yeah, I think that you have to find your people, right? You can't um, be vulnerable with everyone and everyone does not deserve our vulnerability like that. For me, professional organizations have, have provided that and also just sort of grassroots work. I just think about my work with Disrupt Text, um, my co-founders, how we can talk about really hard things like decisions that we've made in classrooms and how they impact kids and what might be the implications. I think that that's what has to happen and that you have to realize, we all have to realize we cannot do this work ourselves. And also like, where are the spaces where we can be vulnerable without fear of retaliation? Because I think that's what I'm also hearing um, in that question. Like, how do you be vulnerable without worrying that it's gonna come out in your evaluation or at a, a school committee meeting, for example. And I think those are always risks that we take, but it's really like, how do you find your people? How do you hold them close? How do you set up something where you all, all can be accountable and belong to each other? Because that's the way we make it through. Your book is structured in a way where, you know, you're, you're explaining a lot of things. You're, you have like different uh, suggestions in terms of actions that can be taken. But then you also have like the structure where you that you call occasional explanatory commas, right? Can you say a bit about what they are and how they model culturally relevant literacy instruction? Yeah, right. I, I think that so much of what we think about literacy instruction and anti-racism and liberatory education is just sort of osmosis. You're just supposed to know it. And I think that the same thing that applies when you're working beside young people and that we just, we can't assume that people know anything, right? Assuming sort of got us here. But when you take the time to make sure that everyone has the same working knowledge, then you get further. And that's really what the, um, the explanatory comment is about, right? Where, what are the, the terms, the ideas that it makes sense to pause and, and explain, right? So we all know what that means moving forward so we can move forward together, right? We all got to get there together. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny, this, this idea of togetherness, collectivism, taking me back to another uh, interview that I did not too long ago uh, with Jarvis Gibbons. Uh, <laughs> I love yeah. Jarvis. Yeah, 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 that, that dude's the man. In my own walk as a student, I'm seeing like a arc between what he was saying has been true about the art of Black teaching, to use a subtitle, mm -hmm. and what you're saying 
can be true and is true in practice today, right? Because, you know, he talks a lot about communal literacy, mm-hmm. right? And that's exactly, when I'm reading this book, that's exactly what it is, right? And it's, and it's fleshing out the framework for how that can happen in today's classrooms and in today's climate. I love that. Oh my yeah. goodness, that is so, thank you. Thank you. I love no, that. No, no it's, it's, it's awesome that, that I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, this is what he was talking about historically that was happening with, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the Carter G. Woodson's of the mm-hmm. world and, and, and all the folks who were using his uh, textbooks and, and things of that nature during like the Rosenwald school era, right? <laughs> right? And, and leading up to and through Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. This is like a reclamation of that, uh, of that practice. Um, I'll take that. I will receive that. Uh, <laughs> yes. Thank you. I love that. Yep. Yep. And and for those who would like more context, please check out uh, the book Fugitive Pedagogy: Carter G. Woodson and the Art of Black Teaching. Mm-hmm. It is an into, excellent book. It is it excellent. Is. It is. Yep. Goes really well into how there have been equitable instructional moves to use our language today uh, within our culture and in our history for a while, um, and that. You know, they haven't really gone anywhere. They just have to be, you know, seen for what they are. And I think, um, you know, uh, literacy's liberation ties in well uh, with that, no doubt. Uh, I'd like for you to take a moment to imagine. We are at the Kimberly N. Parker Academy of Culturally Relevant Teaching. Okay. What's happening in classrooms? Um, what's happening in professional learning in that school? And what's happening in administrative offices? Well, well, you know, like <laughs> if it's the current context, I would imagine that um, folks might not be in the building because they might be like out in the streets um, at some protest or doing some sort of political action that um, young people have sort of centered what is important to them. And I think even the youngest children have um, political consciousness. And so it's like, what's the action that, you know, makes sense for them in whatever context they are in. And that how do we help them and support them, right? And there are all of those pieces that sort of go into that. So I would imagine that whatever stage that is in, teachers are providing text and instruction um, that is relevant to that subject and also doing writing that is real world writing, right? If that's writing um, posters, if it's small children or older kids, if it's doing some sort of social media campaign, if it's writing letters or um, emailing local officials, whatever it needs. If they're having an event, it's doing all of those pieces that are actually like being part of the world and getting things done. Administrators are supporting, right? They are supporting their teachers. They are saying, okay, right? Like you are um, supporting children. You are pushing them, right? You are holding them in spaces and giving them the support that they need to be their very best self. And everyone is singing the same song. Um, That doesn't mean that it looks the same classroom to classroom, but it means that everyone has has an understanding of what it means for young children and all the children in the school to achieve at really high levels. And they get it, right? They do it. I mean, I think it's, it's two different things to say, I understand it, but the doing of it is where we really um, need the work. And that's what I would hope would be happening there. How does this book, Literacy is Liberation, help support folks who want to make instruction more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful? Well, I think that um, what I, so it comes to sort of two prongs. One, I talk about sort of how I came to that consciousness. And then I like to tell Trisha 
a Barbie often that I wasn't born this way. I didn't wake up doing this. I wasn't born woke. Um, And then too, I think that I've worked with lots of teachers who sort of just get to a point where they want to do something, but the doing is sort of this nebulous thing. And so I think that the book is about the doing, right? Even about down to the conversations about like, how do you navigate challenging conversations in classrooms, which we know that come up and often leave us with guilt and doubt about what we should have said. So that's what it is. It's a a way to enter into conversations, to enter into communities with children um, and do the work. So this is like the next step. If you have been thinking about it, this book will help you to do it. This spin of the LP with Kimberly Parker left me with a few things to reflect on. I'm reminded of the fact that rigid instruction is not vivid instruction. We have to be sure that the tools we use to provide structure for the learning experiences of our kids don't turn into structures that limit growth and creativity. And when it comes to instruction, some tools just don't need to be used, period. Doing research on what works for literacy instruction can help teachers separate what's traditional instruction versus what's equitable instruction. Our conversation is making me think about how low-level instruction supported by low-level tools and low-level texts leads to low-level learning, which causes deep discouragement of meaningful literacy experiences. Also, savior complexes only show that we need saving. Saving from our own biases, blind spots, and social positions that limit our ability to provide grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction. We live in an era where mentorship in our professional learning communities and networks can't stay local. We miss opportunities to grow otherwise. We greatly benefit from mentorship in professional learning communities that exist both in person and online. If you want to keep your spirit and practice on point, Leaning into both avenues will be critical. Through her in-person collective work, through her online presence, and through a book that can guide and develop thousands of educators, Dr. Kimberly Parker sets a good example. If you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge in your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website at unboundedorg forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media at unboundedu. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP, Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourages student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress.